Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. Flannery O'Connor, that famous Southern Gothic writer, once spoke a truth in which she said, people think that religion is just some big, shiny electric blanket. When, of course, it's the cross. When, of course, it's the cross. But today, people still think that when it comes to religion, when it comes to us, us silly Christians with our folly, of preaching Christ crucified and risen from the dead, that it's just some sort of big electric blanket for ourselves. We feel a little bit better about who we are. But before we feel better about who we are, we have to remember what our religion, what our faith, what our God, who He is, who we say that He is, and what He has done for us. And like Flannery O'Connor says, which of course means it's the cross, bloodied, for our redemption, bloodied because of our sins, bloodied because without his blood, we still sit condemned, without hope in our shame. But because Christ is crucified, Christ was buried, and Christ is and still continues to be risen from the dead, we have a hope. We have a promise. A promise that if we place our trust in, that if we truly believe that Christ is living, has died for us, then we have a hope that springs eternal. We have a well from which we can drink from continually and never thirst again. And it all begins with the victory of God. And what by all other accounts and purposes, should be the greatest defeat. But instead, his victory is found not coming as a conquering hero. The victory is not when he comes in on Palm Sunday and the people cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the son of David. That's not the victory. That's what the people think is happening. That's what they want. They want to see blood spilt of their enemies. They want to see Romans killed in the streets and uprising. But the only blood that's going to be spilt is the spilt blood of our Savior, of the Son of God, of the Son of Man. And it's through His blood that our victory is obtained. Our victory starts with our surrender. Our victory in Christ is when we lay down our arms as the rebels against God and take up his banner, take up his cross, and take up his own Christ and be joined to him in his body, in faith, in trust. That's when Christ's victory is applied to us and becomes our victory. When we are in him, as he dwells in us and we in him, Then, unified by such a strong faith in what he has accomplished, in his promise to defeat our true enemies, not our fellow men, not the nations of the world, but against the sin that we struggle with, 
against the death before our eyes, against Satan who has bound us for all our lives. Those enemies he kills and he triumphs and he makes a mockery thereof. And so while the world looks at us and thinks this is folly, this is foolishness, we know through our trust in the living God that it is the truth of who he is. And so that question, it should echo in our minds daily. Who do you say that he is? Because that hinges upon the gospel, the good news. And let us make the gospel the main thing. For if anything else is the main thing in this life or in this church, then we're preaching another gospel. And that is foolishness. And that is hopelessness. But let us turn to the scriptures, to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. And let us hear from the word of God about the living word of God, about his Christ, his anointed one, his Messiah. When Paul says in chapter 2, verse 15, he's talking to the Galatians and says, We ourselves are Jews by birth, and we're not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified, is not counted righteous by works of the law. And we heard what those works of the law are. And we heard the Decalogue read over us, and we responded that, Lord, incline our hearts to keep your law. Because the heart that we're born with cannot keep the law. But, Paul says, through faith, through trust in Jesus Christ, the only one who's been faithful to God's own commands, through him, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified in faith. And not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We can strive, we can contend to keep the law, but we keep failing, do we not? We keep falling. We do not accomplish it. We do not fulfill it. And so the works of the law cannot make us righteous. Paul continues, verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified, in our fight to be justified, to be counted righteous in Christ, that we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? By no means, certainly not. Because if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, Paul is telling us, if I rebuild the law of God, and I use it to achieve righteousness, and I start to rebuild what's been torn down by the blood of the Lamb, all I show is that I'm a transgressor. For the law is a mirror, a mirror of who we are by nature. And when we look in that mirror, what do we see? The older we get, the more the wrinkles we see. The more we see our hairs are either leaving our head or are turning gray. When we look at the law of God, what we see is that condemnation of that slow death due to our sins. So if I rebuild that law and I look at it to achieve my righteousness, I don't see my own righteousness. I see my own sin. What I've rebuilt in the law of God is simply going to tear me back down. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. For I have been crucified with Christ. Paul has been crucified with Christ. And we too, if we have faith and trust in Christ Jesus, have been crucified with him upon Calvary. So Paul continues, it's no longer I who live, 
but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness, if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so Paul tells us what we need to listen to, church, that when it comes to our justification, our being counted as righteous, like Abraham was counted righteous, it's not through the works that we perform. It's through our faith and our trust in the one and only Son and Savior of us who accomplished it on our behalf. When Christ was crucified on that cross, it was done so for each one of us. And if by faith we trust and truly believe that Christ has died for our sins, then we are united to him by faith. And our old man, our old self, our old flesh, as Paul tells us in Romans, was crucified with Christ. Though he be the sinless one, though he be the new Adam, our old Adam is crucified with the new Adam on that cross. So now it's truly no longer you who live. If you have faith in that, if you have trust in Christ Jesus, now the Spirit of God that we heard so much about on Pentecost, the Spirit of God who fills the members of the church, who indeed fills the church itself as the body of Christ, His very own Spirit is in you now. And it's no longer you who should be living. You should be dying to yourself, surrendering your own will to His will so that He now lives in you. So now, the works that you do are not to be counted righteous, but are works of a faithful servant, going forth and doing what the Master expects of us. Because what more can we do? We who are so loved by Him who gave His life for us, what else can we do except celebrate this good news that it is finished because of what He has done? And because it is finished, we should celebrate, we should shout the victory, it should be as though the clock goes from five to four to three to two to one to zero. And the victory of the game has been occurred. The victory has been achieved. The game is over. The contest is finished. But we were merely in the stands. The victor belongs to the one there on the field who gained the victory for us. And yet do we not, every football season, proclaim that victory when our team wins we feel it in our bones. Admit it. When you're in that crowd, you feel it. You go through you. It's electrifying, is it not? How much more electrifying is it if you simply believe with a mustard seed that Jesus Christ, who died for you, who has made you one with him, that his very own spirit goes through you, Christian, goes through you right now, lives within you. He enables you to move, to breathe, to live this new life right now. And though you may not feel it, it doesn't make it any less true. Because God has promised. And if we have just the simplest, smallest little faith, it is achieved and applied to you. And that spirit that lives with you is so important, so precious. That spirit of God is so powerful. The very self-same spirit who hovered above the waters of creation in Genesis the same very Spirit who is God, as we proclaimed in the Athanasian Creed last week. That same God, the one true God, makes a home within you. So you are not your own. You are not your own. You're walking temples of the Holy Spirit. 
Let us live like temples of grace so that we may be faithful and walk in the new life as Paul tells us in Romans. But we go back to Galatians now in chapter 3. Paul continues, Oh foolish Galatians! Oh foolish church! Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. We have been building up to this church for so long. You've heard me preach time and time again. To know the old covenant is to see the new covenant. And we must understand that old covenant to understand what God has done in this new work, this new covenant that he gives to us. And it all goes back to Abraham. And Paul's about to just rattle it through. And that's why we've got to go through Galatians today to understand it, to see what we've been, you know, seeing the seeds, seeing God watering. And now we see the roots coming up. And we're about to see the flowers of what's been preached from beginning to the end. Verse 7. Know then, it's those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not those of the blood of Abraham, but those who are of faith are the ones who are truly of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand. Don't let anyone tell you that the gospel is only found in this back half of this big book we call the Bible. The gospel was preached beforehand all throughout the Old Covenant. From A to Z, from Genesis to Revelation. But how? I don't see it. What do you mean, Andrew? Listen to Paul. This is the word of God to Abraham. In you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith, of trust, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it's written right there in the law. Paul quotes it. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We heard the law read over us, the Decalogue. And we know that we are truly errant, fallen short, or what the Bible calls sinners. It's a word people don't like to hear today. Does it make it any less true? But even if we just leave that old biblical word sinners behind for a moment, now bear with me, it means that we have erred. We have missed that mark. And the mark was, as Lord Jesus summarized, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. And the second greatest commandment is likened to it. You shall love thy neighbors as yourselves. In Jesus, our God, God the Son, the same Lord who bequeathed the law to Moses, is also the one who expounds upon the law when he is there upon that mount, giving the sermon. And he takes the law, which seems so very simple. And we can say, oh, I have not murdered anyone. And the Lord says, but any time you have called your brother a fool, you have committed murder. I haven't committed adultery. 
Yeah, I'm faithful in my marriage. If you so much have looked at a woman with lust in your eyes, you have committed adultery. Our Lord, our God, the Lord Jesus, he doesn't make the law easier. He shows just how drastic the distance is between us and our God, between holiness and we who are unholy, between the living God and we who are dead in our trespasses and our sin. But there's good news that if we realize that the law is showing us for who we are, dead in our trespasses, that it is good news that Christ, that God, sends his Son, who is very God of very God, to become man in order to accomplish and live the life that we can never lead. And so now when we are united to him by faith. It is no longer, thank God, I who live, but he who lives within me. We find a new identity in Christ. And Revelation even tells us we have a new name in Christ. Paul continues in verse 11. It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for, and he quotes from the prophet, the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, and he quotes from the law, the one who does them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by he becoming a curse for us. Now listen to this. Because Paul goes back to that old covenant law. It's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so that in Christ Jesus, when he hung upon the tree, when he hung upon that cross, that blessing of Abraham, that Abraham with many sons, more children than he could see or count from the stars of the sky, that that promise might come to the Gentiles, Paul continues, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We receive him, his very own spirit, through trust, not in ourselves, but in the one who came down for us. And then Paul breaks it down for us and gives us a human example, as he says in verse 15. Even with a man-made covenant, with a man-made will, you're writing how you're going to give to those who are going to inherit from you. You don't cancel it, you don't annul it, and you can't add to it once it's been signed, ratified, signed, sealed, delivered, stamped with your very own seal. In verse 16, Paul says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then Paul makes an important note here. It doesn't say in the old law to Abraham's offsprings, plural, referring to many, but is referring to one, to offspring. And then Paul explains, this is what I mean. That the law, the Mosaic law, that came 430 years after Abraham, it doesn't annul and cancel that promise, that will, that covenant to Abraham that was ratified by God. It doesn't make that promise to Abraham void. That promise to having many sons and filling all the earth is still there and not nullified by the Mosaic law. Verse 18, if the inheritance came by the law, it no longer comes by promises, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. I promise to bless you. I promise to make you fill the earth. Not by anything that you do, Abraham, but simply by looking upon it and believing in the promises of God. So Paul asked the question we all should ask, and we probably all ask at some point in our lives as Christians, why then the law? Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. Transgressions already occurring. We see it throughout the entire Genesis account of our own sins that start from day one 
from the fall until the offspring, the promised offspring, until Christ should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place, the Mosaic law, through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. He's calling us to remember Old Testament. that when the Mosaic law was given, the whole host of the angelic beings were there when the law was given to Moses. Verse 21, is the law, the Mosaic law, then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. It's not that the law was bad, for if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have indeed been by the law. But the scriptures have imprisoned, the law has imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise of faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. And Paul's continuing, using this logic to walk us through all of Scripture and all of history to know what our salvation is. And we need to know this, Christian, so that we can faithfully proclaim it. Verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law guarded us, pointed out our transgressions, showed where we erred, and showed our need, our desperate need for a Savior. But now, verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian of the Mosaic Covenant, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. That's radical. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Digest that for a moment. Do you truly believe that? I know that in these sinful bodies that we have. We don't feel it. But the promise of God is that you are now a son of God because you have faith in Christ Jesus, the son of God, who's adopted us. The king has adopted us traitors to come to his table, to dine with him, to dwell with him. And not only to dwell with him, but for he to dwell in us. His very spirit upon those of us through faith. Verse 27. For as many of you who were baptized, think about it, whom among you are baptized? For many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I wear the black underneath this robe because I am a sinner like you. And it's only because I put on the white robe of Christ that he clothes me and clothes you in righteousness, his righteousness, not our own. So now, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It's radical what God has done. Paul takes it out there and just knocks it out of the park in terms of the old covenant being fulfilled by the new covenant and that unity of Abraham's promise from so long ago that we are brought into that covenant. For the majority of us here, we are not Jewish. We are all Gentiles. And even for those who are Jewish, you're part of the covenant. We together, no more Jew nor Greek, Jew nor Gentile. For we're all one in Christ Jesus, not by works of the law, which just show that we are sinners in need of grace, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So now we, church, are made one for one purpose, one mission, one body to proclaim Christ crucified. And woe is me or any other preacher of the gospel who preaches anything otherwise. For that is the only good news that we have in this life. It's not on us. It was placed upon him. 
So now we can live lives of freedom, not free to sin, but free to walk in the works of righteousness that God created you and me. Before he made the foundation of the world, he knew he was going to make you and make you for that purpose to go to love and serve him, to dwell in harmony with our neighbors. And though we are called to bring such good news to our neighbors, our Lord Jesus Christ has something to tell us in Luke. Going back to your reading in Luke chapter 9, as printed also in your bulletin, Christ has something to tell us about our victory through our surrender. It's counterintuitive. Listen to our Lord and what he says. Because he starts out with a question. He asks his disciples, after he's praying alone, as he often does, who are the crowds? Who do they say that I am? And they respond with what they're hearing. Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah, who never died, was taken up into heaven. I can see why some people thought that. Elijah performed great works. He's performing great works. Perhaps Elijah has come back down. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It becomes personal when Christ asks the disciples that question. It becomes personal to ourselves because we have to ask that question. It's not about church membership. It's not about what you have done. It's not about, I'm a pretty decent person, because then you're lying to yourself. You're not looking at that mirror that is the law of God and truly being honest with yourself. But that question you cannot avoid. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a mere man? Or is he son of God and some man? C.S. Lewis summarized it. Lord, liar, or lunatic. He's either a liar because he claimed to be one with God and the Son of God, the Son of Man. And if he is not, he'd be a liar. A lunatic who has deception thinking that he is Son of God or Son of Man when he would indeed not be if he's just a mere man. And therefore, why follow after him? Or truly Lord. And therefore, everything should be filtered and go through him. The prism of our life is Jesus Christ. If we too confess, as Peter did, you're the Christ, you're the anointed one. You're the son of the living God, the son of David, the king of Israel, yea, indeed, the king of the entire universe. What we think about Jesus and what other people think about Jesus doesn't matter because what matters is the truth of who Jesus is and the truth is a living person as Pontius Pilate learns when he questions what is truth and he's staring the living truth in the face I am the way the truth and the life our Lord tells us no one comes to the Father except through me that's who Jesus is and if we confess that that's who he is then our entire life goes through his words, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. In verse 22, there in Luke 9, we hear our Lord, after hearing this faithful proclamation revealed to Peter by God himself, he then turns and says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and will be rejected. 
be rejected by the very religious elite, the rulers of the time, the elders, the chief scribes, the Pharisee, and the priests, and he'll be killed. And on the third day, he will be raised. There's the gospel right there. Who is Jesus? The Christ. What is the Christ to do? To be killed and to be risen again. Why? So that we may live in him and he in us. So that we may be truly cleansed. And it's our trust in Christ crucified for our sins that we must renew daily. For in verse 23, he continues, he said to all, meaning not only the 12, but any of the others who are gathered around him, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, if you confess this Christian, and therefore you were willing to follow him, then what? Then let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Self-denial is the path of the Christian. Not because we're gaining or earning anything, because we're responding. And it must be something that we take up daily. Our trust in Christ must be renewed daily that he died for us. And finally, picking up and bearing our own cross, we must do daily. For Paul will tell us later in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, those who are Christ, those who belong to him, those who are Christ, have crucified the flesh, that old Adam with its passions and its desires. Our flesh must truly be crucified so that only the spirit who lives within us is who is living and not we ourselves. If we crucify our own flesh daily and let the spirit to live within us, then we will see what it is and what it means to walk in newness of life. Christ compels us and tells us in verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Do you want to save your life? Do you want to extend it, prolong it, enrich it? Continue upon the path of the flesh, the path of the world, and you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whoever loses his life, for my sake, will save it. That means everything, Christian. Losing your life doesn't mean losing some of your time, losing some of your possessions, but losing everything for his sake. Everything we do, everything that we think, everything that we speak, every possession that we have, we need to honestly examine ourselves and ask if we're losing it and using it to the glory of God and for his sake. Not because we are gaining our salvation, because we are truly showing that we have a trust in what Jesus is saying and what he has done for us. We lose everything, and then we gain life. For what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? That's outside the reading, but that's what Christ says next. One more verse from outside the reading. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. When the Lord returns in his second advent, those who have been ashamed of him, ashamed of his words, will have revealed that they don't have a true trust in who Christ is. 
So be not ashamed, but be joyful for what God has done for you through His Son, Jesus Christ. And be joyful in a public way, in an audible way, in a physical way, by proclaiming Christ is Jesus. That the Son of Man and the Son of God is Jesus. That the Messiah and our Savior is Jesus. And that our Lord, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, is Jesus. We live in a time and a place when even the name of Jesus makes people's eyes roll into the back of their head. They may not have their eyes roll back in their head, but their ears are instantly closed off. So Christian, gut check yourself daily. Take up your cross daily and live as one who has the Spirit of God promised to you daily. And speak Jesus the Christ crucified and risen again for our sins. So that when you speak of Jesus, Lord willing over time, that Spirit of God is working on the hearts of those whom you proclaim Christ crucified. And they see that indeed it is the Spirit who lives within you. So then they will have that question of what is going on? What's different about you? What has changed? The same thing that I've been telling you every day. Jesus crucified and living within me. It's a gift given to us. And it's not a gift for us to hide. Not a gift for us to keep walled up in these four walls, but good news, gospel, to share with all. So Church of the Good Shepherd, I know I go along, but this is crucial because this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're gathered here today. And we need to know the gospel, written in the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, so that we can be faithful to it, so that we can share it, so that we can live it. And so that's why I encourage us to anchor down to hunker down, not enclosed within ourselves, but within our hearts, so that we will burst forth with our own actions and our own words, focusing this year, not the next church year when Advent comes around, next, next, not the next calendar year when 2023 comes around, but starting now to make this the year of the gospel, because truly every day is a day about the gospel. But let it be our intention, Church of the Good Shepherd, to truly follow our shepherd the only one who is good. Let us start with the simplest of tasks, by loving on our neighbors however we can, by sharing who Jesus is however we can, whenever the opportunity presents itself. Start by even writing your local neighbors. When someone new moves into your apartment complex, to your neighborhood, write to them, welcome them, love on them, and share who Jesus is invite them to come and hear who Christ is. Dine with them. The people you know and the people you don't know, but you need to know. Invite them. Host them. Meet with them and love on them as much as God has loved upon you lavishingly through the blood of the Son. And finally, be an encourager like Barnabas. Encourage one another. We have so much to learn from our Lord. And it is a hard and difficult task to carry our own cross. But remind each other, 
Christ carried the cross for us. And now we walk as servants of the one who died for us. We no longer walk in darkness, stumbling about with our own sins weighing us down. But now we have the easy and light yoke of Christ. Let us take hold of it and let us in faith walk after the one, the only one who walked in faithfulness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again for joining us on the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. We hope that you'd visit us in person. We have Sunday worship uh, every Sunday at 1030 in the morning. And you can visit us on our website at www.goodshepherdacna.com or visit us on Facebook at Good Shepherd ACNA. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe, and rate the podcast. It not only makes us feel better, but more importantly, it helps those who are searching for Anglican podcasts find podcasts like this one and other ones that are out there on the web. Thank you, God bless, and have a good one. The Lord be with you, and with thy spirit, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is meet and right so to do.